Chapter 34 I began by desiring to be another man, then, on reflecting that I might by analogy foresee what I should feel, and thus not experience the surprise and the change that I had looked for, I would have preferred to be a woman. Théophile Gautier, Mademoiselle de Maupin, 1836 Naomi bursts into tears and embraces me. It is a late June afternoon, and I set down the last box hugging her back. The old Buick is stuffed with possessions, passenger seats, and the trunk overflowing. Her wet face presses against mine. I exhale humid air, full of lawnmower fumes from neighborhood yards. I'm sorry you two can't get along. It's probably better this way. Naomi releases me, then rubs her eyes and strokes fingers through her coppery hair. There's just no living with that woman. Unpredictable and possessive as sin. I should be apologizing to you. She's all yours now. Yeah, well, good luck. I hope things work out. You could use time with fewer leashes. Serious? Okay. I really should go and stop making a scene like this. Goodbye, then. Her gaze lowers. Take care, Ross. As Naomi's car disappears at the end of Tolman Street, a postal truck turns our corner and pulls up in front of me. The carrier hops out, a stack of mail in hand. She recognizes me and smiles, handing over the pile. Bills, medical notices, advertisements, and a small package for Babette. This I examine closely. The return address is British Columbian. I carry it inside. My professor sits at the kitchen table, shaking her head. She looks as I enter, face stern. I do not understand that girl. Naomi had every opportunity with me to pursue her education, but threw it all away. Say, lovey, we are finished. She will not be welcome in this house again. This came for you, I say, handing her the small parcel. She fondles its brown paper edges and hums a Dvorak melody. It slips through her shaky hands and slaps onto the table. With a frown, she slides the package toward me. Please see if your nimble fingers will open this. I tear off the packing tape and find a rectangular shape, surrounded in yellow tissue paper. Babette nods for me to continue. Beneath this layer is the framed photograph of a smiling pink-cheeked woman with short gray curls. She appears in late middle age and is dressed formally. Steel-blue eyes glint behind large glasses. Is this Mother Superior? I ask, holding the photo up. Babette snatches it away. Oh God, that snake would keep a sight on me even from afar. She lays the picture face down and crosses herself up, down, left, right. So, do you want it on the mantelpiece then? I ask, straight-faced. Heavens no! Oh, I see, you'd like it up in your room. The nightstand, perhaps? Ross, don't be vile. I want that thing kept as far away as possible. Please put it somewhere in the basement, where I shall never come across it in a hundred years. My professor glowers and turns away. At any rate, speaking of Canadian matters, she continues, I should mention that in two weeks, a friend from there will visit over the weekend. Unfortunately, she is Anglo-Canadian and shares your vulgar language. I suggest you use it with her. As minimally as possible. I shrug. Thanks for the warning. I'll do my best. It is a hot Friday afternoon two weeks later when I come home and find Babette outside with her guest on the patio, sun umbrella opened for shade. 
Before them sit delicate teacups with matching saucers. Babette beckons, the gesture curt. Ross, Ross, come here. You should meet my friend Bonnie Church. She drove down from British Columbia and will stay overnight. I approach and take the woman's hand. She is probably in her early forties, short hair wavy and brown with strands of gray. A floral sundress reveals freckled skin on her neck and shoulders. Our gaze meets, but she quickly looks away. Very pleased to meet you, Bonnie, I begin. She opens her mouth for reply, but is cut off. There, Babette announces. You two have been introduced. That is all a social convention requires. I do not believe further communication should be necessary. Oh, but join us for dinner at seven, Ross. I have defrosted some chicken. You may eat with us. In complete silence. I nod, lips clamped. Bonnie frowns up at me, hazel eyes curious. That evening, Babette cooks with a frenzy. I find her in the kitchen, la rousse gastronomique open, and numerous vegetables on the cutting board. She chops away, the sharp knife a blur. Bonnie sits at the table with a glass of wine. I silently fetch a broom to sweep up cucumber stem ends and leafy carrot tops that spangle the floor. My professor looks over benignly. Oh, Ross, thank you. Some vegetables will not hold still. But you may appreciate this. Tonight, I make étouffée de palais panage. That is, braised chicken in the style of panage. Have you read Rabelais yet? His story of Gargantua and Pantagruel? Uh, no? Well, a pity. Panage is one of the main characters. A thief, liar, and absolute coward. If you refuse to read Rabelais, the least you could do is assist me with this delicious meal. The dour mood from earlier has disappeared. Her feet almost skip as she moves across the linoleum. I tried helping, Bonnie calls out. Babette shakes her head. No, you are a guest. Have some more wine. Ross, please finish these carrots and cucumbers. Oh, do we have onions? Excellent. They should be quite thin, like parchment paper. Afterwards, could you bake some of your delicious fruit scones? We have apples, we... I take the sharp knife and slice onions as directed. My professor busies herself preparing a chicken she cuts into pieces and sears with butter on the stove. Steam rises and fat crackles against the hot metal. Once everything simmers away, she sets the dining table with a blue and white service from the china cabinet. Each dish is engraved, displaying old castles and idyllic countrysides. These are scenes from rural England. What lovely landscapes. We shall use them tonight in honor of an Anglo-Canadian visitor. Her face glows. Bonnie watches me dice green apples and mix up dough for the scones. I form eight triangular pieces on an oiled pan, then brush each lightly with milk and sugar. Once the oven reaches 400 degrees, I place them on the middle rack. Twenty minutes later, the pan is filled with golden-topped pastries. Babette looks over my shoulder approvingly. Wonderful. Dessert can cool while we eat. Oh, Bonnie, everything is ready. Please come dine, she calls out. We sit around the table and fill our plates. Bonnie and I tuck in with silent enthusiasm. However, Babette maintains a constant monologue, hands fluttering. The genius of François Rabelais. A lewd anecdote about Calvin Coolidge visiting a poultry farm. Haida Indian tribes on Canada's west coast. She pauses only to swallow bites of food, then gestures with her empty fork. Once Panurge's chicken is gone, I retrieve my warm scones and present them with flair on a blue engraved platter. Bonnie eats a whole piece, but my professor merely nibbles the corner of one. 
She dabs her lips with a checkered serviette and leans back. The wooden chair creaks in protest. I am sorry. My energy has sadly flown. I must retire for the evening. Bonnie, it is my greatest wish you do so as well. Ross, why don't you visit that Zoya girl you enjoy so much? Her slippers tread upstairs. Napoleon III's bust fixes me with a severe stare. The clocks tick away in conspiratorial concert. Bonnie sets down her wine glass, and our eyes meet. Is there a bar nearby? She asks, voice low. Yeah, let's wait a little until Babette falls asleep. That'll give me time to clean up. I hand wash my professor's china service. Then, once the drying rack is filled, I climb halfway up the stairs and listen. Heavy snores emanate from above. I descend and nod at Bonnie, who waits by the front door, a green-knit sweater now covering her shoulders. Outside, she unlocks a silver Honda four-door parked on the street. As the engine starts, I glance up at Babette's window. The glass remains dark. We drive down Holgate to the semaphore lounge, just a few minutes away. Neon signs glare in the evening dusk. Play lotto here. Ice cold schlitz. We enter and select a booth near the back. Classic rock blares on the jukebox. Around us, patrons smoke, guzzle pints, and slump before video poker screens. A plump waitress with bleach blonde hair and dark roots cruises by. I look at Bonnie. Share a pitcher? She nods. We'd like a pitcher of Pabst, I order. The waitress turns on her heel and disappears behind the bar. Once she is gone, Bonnie shoots me a serious look, hazel eyes wide. Oh my god, Ross, what have I gotten into? I frown. Maybe we can figure it out. How did you meet Babette? She toys with a cardboard coaster on edge, then slaps it down. It happened several months ago. She's been kind, very kind, but everything is so strange. I know she doesn't want us talking. It doesn't make sense. God, nothing makes sense after meeting her. I laugh. <laughs> that the truth? She exhales and fumbles in her purse for a cigarette as our beer arrives. I slowly fill two glasses at an angle from the cold plastic pitcher. So, what happened exactly? I ask. She takes a first sip, then licks foam off her upper lip. Well, I live in Nanaimo, British Columbia, and work at a funeral home. Last March, Babette showed up and opened an account, saying she spent much time in B.C. and wanted arrangements in case she died away from home. I set her up with a cremation package. She prepaid the whole thing. No big deal. Then we fell into conversation. One thing led to another, and before I knew it, Babette invited me out for lunch. I agreed, and, well, it became a friendship. She visits often, sometimes for quite a while, but something seems odd. May I ask, is she, well, was she, did she used to be a man? Is that what you're asking? Bonnie nods. She twirls her cigarette, still unlit. I tip back my glass and swallow. She was assigned male at birth, lived privately as a woman whenever possible, but as a man publicly until 1994, then underwent sex reassignment surgery. Voila. Babette. Bonnie exhales. Okay, okay, as I suspected. But it's so hard to tell. There's just something about her, well, so many things. I feel rude asking, eh? It is a sensitive subject. So, I lean forward. What next? She strikes a match. The cherry on her marble crackles into life. Right. Well, 
It all began innocently, but now things have changed. That's why Babette invited me here, for serious business. Do you know about the convent? The convent, I exclaim. Does it really have high stone walls and long, dark hallways like some gothic novel? Bonnie laughs. No, (laughs) there isn't any wall. I've never been inside. But the place is just a big house. Plus, of course, not an actual convent. My face falls. Oh, it's not? Damn, that's an image I really cherished. So, what do you mean, not really a convent? Not an official Benedictine order affiliated with the Catholic Church. Don't be disappointed, though. It's creepier than any real convent. The place is full of women who pretend they're nuns. It's a community that replicates monastic life, but without official Benedictine status. I suppose there wasn't a way Babette could join any real convent, so she picked the next best thing. What about Mother Superior? I ask. Bonnie blanches and takes a long drag. Smoke rises between her lips, circling above our heads in a ragged nimbus. Oh, that woman is real. The fact I may have to deal with her someday makes my blood run cold. Why would you? Well, Babette wants me legally in charge of her Canadian affairs. You know she's Canadian, right? Canadian? I had no idea. Everything I've seen suggests she's an American citizen. Do you mean, like, some kind of dual nationality? Bonnie lifts her glass again. Maybe. So can you tell me Babette's story? What am I getting involved with here? Her voice lowers. That woman paid off half my house. She must want something very serious from me. Your house? Wow. I finish my pint. You'll need a few more of these. I'll start with a motorcycle trip, but the tale, such as it is, really begins in the rural northwest over 70 years ago. An hour later, I conclude a condensed version of my professor's past and our adventures together. Germain Bonafont and 1920s Yakima, Felix Yusupov and World War II France, Judge Shoemaker and Billy's house on Tolman Street, St. Agatha Catholic Church and the Rajneesh Purim. Bonnie stares, her expression drained. The ashtray sits heavy with cigarette butts. I just don't know, she declares. This is all so incredible. I don't think I'd believe any of it if she hadn't stood in front of me. Flesh and blood. Can you verify these things? Much of it. There are lots of pictures. Whether from a kidnapping or not, it does look like she was born in central Washington, then grew up amidst French high society. The rest fits. You perhaps saw a picture of her on the mantelpiece as a young woman? That was Albert in drag, probably back in the 1950s. Bonnie stubs out her last Marlboro. Well, we should get back before Babette wakes and throws a fit. Thanks for telling me all this. Hey, no problem. I'm glad you illuminated some parts for me as well. We pay our tab and drive home. The mossy yard gnome regards us with disapproval. Inside, Bonnie gives me a quick hug, then takes off her shoes and tiptoes upstairs, stocking defeat clandestine. I pick up the kitchen phone and dial. Zoya answers. Hello? Jazz horns trumpet in the background from Salazar's stereo. Hey, it's me. Got the night off from Babette duties. Can I come over? Even across town, I feel her smile. Absolutely, she replies. I grin as well. Okay, the next bus comes soon. See you in a few. After grabbing an overnight kit with toothbrush, dental floss, and deodorant, I exit into the still night. My boots clip down the sidewalk at double pace under leafy boughs. A crescent moon shines above. Just as I reach the stop by Reed College, wide headlights crest the hill at 39th and Woodstock. 
The number 19 is right on time. Everything must be falling together.